This is The Drive Podcast with Josh Graham. Welcome to the internet, my friend. How can I help you? Check out The Drive weekday afternoons at 3 on WSJS Sports. Places, everyone. Come on, places, please. We're ready. Get your morning off to a great start with Jeffrey Griffin on Triad Today. Weekday mornings at 7. Now back to The Drive with Josh Graham. On this Monday drive, WSJS, News Talk Sports for the Triad. We're after yesterday. Steve Wilkes now has two victories this year, 21-3 against Tampa and leading wire-to-wire in Seattle, that are better than any Matt Rule win. Pick anyone from 2021 or the one he got this year against the Saints. I will take those two Steve Wilkes wins over any of them. And I've now seen enough to say that Wilkes should be the Carolina Panthers coach in 2023 and beyond. They should remove the interim tag off of him. Because whenever coaching searches happen, fit is a buzzword that you will hear thrown around a lot. And when it comes to this specific job, there is nobody who fits more perfectly here than Steve Wilkes. It's not just because... He's a North Carolinian, and more specifically, a Charlottean that played his college football at Appalachian State. Just think about what this team, this organization's been about for the last 25, 27 years or so. Its mantra is keep pounding. What's keep pounding about? It comes from a great defensive player that Carolina had and Sam Mills. Keep pounding. They don't say, pound that throw. They say, pound that rock. And Carolina rushed for 200 yards for the second time under Wilkes yesterday. They're running the football. Keep pounding is about defense. Steve Wilkes is a defensive guy. He was the Panthers' defensive coordinator when they were really humming. So when you think about identity of the team... I think of the legacy, the lineage of Sam Mills to Dan Morgan to Luke Keekley to Thomas Davis at linebacker. I think about Julius Peppers. I think about these great defensive teams. It's not a coincidence that the two greatest coaches that Carolina's ever had are defensive guys, John Fox and Ron Rivera. So this organization, especially the way that it's currently constituted, where according to D. Uh, DVOA today, which analytically looks at who has the best offenses, defenses, teams overall. Carolina ranks top five in the league in defense. With this roster, they fit having a defensive coach. These guys in that locker room want Steve Wilkes to get the job. That's what they've been playing for in some degree for the last few weeks. They've been playing hard for for him. And it's what the fans want too. So when I think of keep pounding, I think of a guy like Steve Wilkes, the way that he wants to play, and what he's about, and what this city means to him, what this state means to him. He understands that. The way that the teams play, leaning on running the ball and defense, that's what the Panthers have been at their best historically, and that's what he's showing David Tepper 
he will continue to do if he's given the full-time gig. We know he's head coaching material. That's why the Arizona Cardinals hired him and nobody dotted an eye when they, when they did so four or five years ago. Nobody thought that was a questionable hire at all. He just wasn't given a fair shot. So Carolina should give him that shot. He should be the head coach in Arizona right now instead of playing, uh, being the Panthers interim coach right now. He should be the coach on Monday Night Football tonight going up against Belichick rather than Cliff Kingsbury, who's probably going to get fired at the end of this year because, again, the Cardinals, their ownership, their management, it's a dysfunctional mess. David Tepper is the one that's going to have to decide whether or not Steve Wilkes gets the job moving forward. So let's hear from Tepper. This is the last time we heard from him a couple of months ago, the day Matt Rule was fired, when asked what type of shot Steve Wilkes would have at having the interim removed. There's a lot of season left, and we'll see how the season goes. Um, ultimately, he's you know in a position to be in consideration for that position. I had a talk with Steve. No promises were made, and uh, but obviously, if he does an incredible job, he's have to be in consideration for that. Let's define incredible. To me, the definition of an incredible job is turning a one in four team to a good football team. Carolina has, since Steve Wilkes took over, is four and four. So he took over a one and four team. They are four and four. That's seven games. Less than half of those games have been at home because. Four of those first five that Matt Rule had were at Bank of America Stadium. And they were getting drubbed by double-digit points, double-digit margins the last two home games he had against Arizona and against San Francisco. Steve Wilkes is 3-0 at home. All three of those wins have been by double digits. And 4-4 four and four doesn't even tell the full story. They should be better than that. It's not because of coaching that they lost in Atlanta. It's not because of coaching DJ Moore took his helmet off. It's not because of coaching Eddie Pinheiro missed two kicks, either of which would have won the game for Carolina. It wasn't because of coaching they lost in Baltimore when they had the Ravens dead to rights in their building, having not scored an offensive touchdown for the first three quarters of that game. So Wilkes has more than done the job, in my opinion. One more win should lock it up especially if it's this weekend. They've got Pittsburgh at home. Now, why is that significant? David Tepper grew up watching the Steelers. David Tepper, prior to becoming the Panthers owner, was the minority stake owner in Pittsburgh. If you are 4-0 at home and you beat Pittsburgh and you give Tepper, which, like any owner, has an ego, the opportunity to hand out footballs again after this game, and you have a winning record through nine games as a coach after inheriting a one-in-four football team and a team that you did not hire the coaching staff for or pick out any of these players that you're coaching for? That, David Tepper, is the definition of, quote, an incredible job, close quote. And a sidebar, nobody left on the schedule has a winning record for Carolina. Nobody else. Carolina's won three of their last four. Nobody else has a winning record on Carolina's schedule. Just throwing that out there. Will Dalton is the executive producer of this show. He's psyched today.
Tar Heels won big on Saturday. They looked the part against Georgia Tech. His Panthers, he came in today saying, I'm all in on Steve Wilkes. They won in Seattle. Oh, I, I am. You're just beaming today. I am. I'm always beaming, though. No, you're not. <laughs> not when your teams lose, like North Carolina has and the Panthers have. We've seen some dark times. We have. This weekend, not one of those dark times. Because getting to Carolina, my favorite moment of North Carolina's get-right win Saturday was as Hubert Davis was getting out of his chair after his press conference, Steve Kirshner, who has been the team's sports information guy for decades now, he was rattling off some stats, as he does. Hashtag Nuggets. Noteworthy stats from the win in ways that North Carolina had played better against Georgia Tech than they have of late. And after each of the stats he handed out, Hubert would pump his fist as he's getting up, walking out the door, almost sarcastically, and he would say out loud, we're trying. We're trying. It's almost as if he found the criticism after four straight losses to be amusing because he knows what this team's capable of. As long as they listen to what he's saying, as long as they take the coaching, as long as they care. So for Carolina, it's not really a question of if they are a team that can play like a contender, but a matter of, well, how often can they play that way? When can they play that way? The adjustments Hubert made produced immediate results. Assists have been a problem. Okay, how about 15 assists on 27 made baskets? No three-point attempts for the first six minutes, so that means no heaved-up jack four shots for Caleb Love. They dominated the paint, 31. They, they dominated the rebound margin by 31 rebounds. 36 points of the paint. They posted up Armando Baycott. What a novel concept. Armando. Seemed healthy. They they cared on defense. And that was on display in the final three minutes of the half where they went on an 11-0 run and turned a two-point lead to just a 13-point lead. Hubert Davis said this of that stretch at the end of the first half. That last three minutes of the first half, I just, it's the first time that I felt like it looked like Carolina basketball. I just... The way we were defending, the way that we were running, and then that play where RJ had a wide open three, and we talked about making the extra pass and hit Pete in the corner. I came in at halftime. That's the first thing that I said to the coaching staff. It's the first time I looked at it, and I go, man, this looks like Carolina basketball. It was great. Now, there are still problems. Carolina's still pretty low in bench scoring, but that's a problem I think will get fixed with Jalen Washington appearing towards the end of the game. First time he's seen action in two years coming off an injury in high school. He's a freshman. He'll take some time. Probably going to be a late developing, blooming player like Walker Kessler was a couple of years ago. But he'll be a dude and he'll add some more legitimacy to the post, which will allow Carolina to play inside out more like they did in that game Saturday. And when you play inside out, it's less falling sideways or backward jumpers for RJ and Caleb that are off the dribble and more spot up shots, which are more high percentage so the three-point shooting probably going to improve too it's not a question of if for carolina they can play like a contender it's a matter of when it's a matter of how often hey triad this is rich eisen catch me this evening at six for the rich eisen show now back to the drive with josh graham We'd like to thank our high school football sponsors for this season, which wrapped up with a couple of state championship broadcasts Friday and Saturday. It was crazy 
that the triad ended up on both sides of surprising results in their three matchups this weekend. Reedsville lost to East Duplin. And it was a legitimate loss. East Duplin, they controlled pretty much the entire first half. If it wasn't for them turning over the ball inside the 10-yard line late in the first half, they might lead 14-0 at the break or... Even worse than that, I think, it would have maybe been 20 to nothing rather than 14-7. No, it would have been 14 nothing. It was 7 to nothing at that point. That's the first title for East Duplin in their history against the team that has more state championships than anybody else in the state of North Carolina. Congratulations to those folks, but still a stunning result nonetheless the second consecutive year that Reedsville and Jimmy Teague not able to win a state championship. But then Mount Airy did. In Raleigh, Mount Airy beat an Eastern North Carolina power in Tarboro. And they seem to have controlled that game too. That's the first ever championship for Mount Airy, and it came against a power. So the roles were reversed. And then Friday night, Grimsley just could not stop the Newburn run. Newburn. Really strong program as Grimsley was. We knew it was going to be a great matchup. It could have gone either way. You can't have special teams work against you in these types of games. It did against Grimsley. And then you have Newburn's run game. They didn't throw a pass the entire game. Pure triple option. And Newburn was the better team on Friday night. Daryl Brown still did a great job to get them there with all these tight games in the state playoffs. But... Congratulations to Mount Airy, but also congratulations too to Grimsley and Reedsville for great seasons, even though they were unable to come up with state titles in Chapel Hill Friday and Saturday. It's a handful of the things that happened in football this weekend. How about we get to the rest of the NFL? Sands Panthers. We spent enough time talking about the Panthers win in Seattle yesterday. So Sands Carolina, Graham's grades from yesterday. Every week is a test for your favorite sports teams. Who passed the test? If one of y'all says some silly ass name. Who dropped the ball? I don't know. Josh Graham has the answers. I think you're very condescending and a know-it-all. Time for Graham's grades. A through F, attaching letter grades to what we saw in the NFL yesterday. Quite a bit of interesting that we saw, starting with A, the San Francisco 49ers. They were up 35 to nothing on Tampa, ended up winning 35 to 7. Brock Purdy, 16 of 21, two touchdown passes, no picks. Tom Brady was running for his life. And if Tom Brady has to run at all, that's usually not a good sign. It's also not a good sign when Tom has to throw 55 times in the game game that they lost by 28 but McCaffrey had a long touchdown run McCaffrey had a great touchdown catch where Brock Purdy was facing a blitz got it off and it was a beautifully threaded throw down the left sideline San Francisco we wrote him off last week because Brock Purdy's at quarterback I still stand by that in terms of a Super Bowl contender but this had to be an encouraging sign for the Niners that They are still the class in the NFC West. Nobody else is really close after Seattle. Now has lost three of their last four. 
The Rams aren't really in the mix at all, and the Cardinals are a mess too. B. We'll go with the LA Chargers here. All week long, we heard about Tua versus Herbert. Who would you rather have? There were some folks saying they would prefer Tua over Herbert, which is laughable. Herbert, there's a reason why these coaches aren't stupid. These GMs aren't stupid. There's a reason why Miami was trying to move off Tua a couple of times in favor of trading for Deshaun Watson and also going after Tom Brady, who was 44 years old. They were going after all of that rather than keeping the guy that they drafted, which would have been the much easier thing to do. It's because Tua is more limited than Justin Herbert is. Justin Herbert's the type of guy, he is the prototype of what you want. And he's brilliant too. He was like a biology major back at Oregon and a really good student and he's tall and he's got a terrific arm and he's overcoming problems on the offensive line, a ton of injuries, probably not the greatest coaching. Well, I think Miami got a stud of a coach. They have a lot of talent, probably the best receiving core in the NFL. Is there any any duo better than Waddle and Tyreek Hill right now? I'd venture to say no. So yes, Tua, if you surround him with talent, he can perform. Justin Herbert's great even if you don't surround him with talent, and it was on display yesterday why that was. They needed something from him. They got it, and the Chargers won a game that they absolutely needed to have. So good on the Chargers. Good on Justin Herbert. C. We'll put the Detroit Lions here. Huh? Josh, come on, a C for a five-win team beating a 10-win Vikings team? Detroit was favored in this game. <laughs> they won by double digits. They took care of business. I'm kicking myself for not having it in Graham's gambling last week. It looks so absurd that you just kind of want to take it, but they've now won five of their last six games, and their one loss was to Buffalo by a field goal. This is a good team. They also have tight losses to Seattle and to Miami. This, The Detroit Lions are good. So spare me all the Dan Campbell jokes. It is funny to me. Last year, the two hires that were the most maligned, the most made fun of, Dan Campbell for the bite-your-kneecaps-off approach and Nick Sirianni wanting to arm-wrestle people while everybody was applauding Brandon Staley. Well, Dan Campbell and Nick Sirianni are doing much better jobs than Brandon Staley is with the Chargers relative to the talent that they have. Really like what Detroit's doing, and yesterday they were just simply the better football team. That's why they were favored, and they took care of the Minnesota Vikings. Good on them. That's why it's a C, because if you've been following this team for the last month and following the league closely, this shouldn't really have surprised you at all. D. The New York Giants. You had an opportunity. This... Might be me being bitter because it was the one pick I gave that I missed yesterday. You got run off the field by the Eagles. You're at home, 48-22, and your punter doesn't know he can't drop kick a football? Come on. I thought the Giants were supposed to be good. Now they're 7-5, and five, and they seem to be going in a tailspin. 7-5-1, and one, excuse me. At the time, you would least want that to happen. They haven't won a football game since beating the Texans a month ago. 
And now they're going to D.C. next week. It's going to be tough for them. F. Tennessee. Credit to Trevor Lawrence, who's looked great over the last few weeks, but you're at home, your backs have been against the wall, and you lose by two touchdowns at home to the Jags? That's an F. That's an F because of the timing of it, the opponent, and where that game is set. That's been Graham's grades for this week. You're on the drive with Josh The radio voice of the Panthers is Anish Shroff, who you might also know is one of the leading voices ESPN has on college football. Perhaps we could get to the college football playoff at the end of our conversation, but not after that win yesterday, which I'd take over any win of the Matt Rule era. I don't know how far I'd be willing to go in talking about how great of a win that was, but really that coupled with the Tampa Bay win, 21-3, to about as good as Panther fans have felt in years plural around here. A lot of noteworthy stats that you can pull from what Carolina did or trends that were bucked by what Carolina did in Seattle. Anish, what's the most impressive aspect of this Panthers win now that we're a day removed from it? I think it's a continuation of what we've been seeing really these last four games where they've won three now. And that's the identity of this team has been forged. They're a team that's going to play gorgeous, beautiful caveman football. Um, It's primitive, but it's beautiful. And they've figured out that's their best option to win. Uh, Line up with multiple tight ends, sometimes three. Line up with a O-lineman at fullback. Run it down the other team's throat. And there was a moment in that game where – Carolina had the ball first and goal at the three. They get stopped on fourth down. Seattle takes over. The Seahawks call a timeout on third down. They convert from their own three, and you're thinking, oh, no. And it looked like Seattle had swung the pendulum to its side, and you kind of felt if the Seahawks score on this drive, is this the movie and the recurring nightmare that we've been seeing all season? Instead, Carolina ends up getting a stop. They get the ball back. And then they just decided to run the football, and Seattle couldn't stop it. And that was a big pivot point in the game. At the end of the day, when you look at 46 rushes for, what, 223 yards, uh, that was awfully impressive, but that's the formula now. And they were able to execute it in one of the toughest environments in the NFL. So then the story becomes Steve Wilkes is an interim candidate um, for the head coaching position beyond this year. He's 4-4 and and inherited a team that was 1-4. and And I know a lot's going to be made out of where he's from. Oh, he's a charlatan, played at App State. And there's the emotional tie of having this guy turn this team around and giving him the job. The way that I view it is what you're talking about with Smash Mouth football, running the ball, and playing with defense, it's not a coincidence that the two greatest coaches in this team's history, John Fox and Ron Rivera, are defensive yep. guys. When you think of the greatest players to ever play for this team, a lot of them are on defense and playing a style like we're seeing from Steve Wilkes right now and what is an audition for him to be the guy moving forward. So if we remove him from being the interim and the emotional appeal of him being local from Charlotte and all of that, if you just view him as a candidate right now, I don't think stylistically, personality-wise, there's a better fit that you can find anywhere else for Carolina Panthers football than Steve Wilkes is there. 
I think he's made an incredibly strong case. And I go back to what the owner, David Tepper, said when Steve Wilkes was first introduced. If he does an incredible job, of course, he's going to be considered to be the full-time head coach. Given the circumstances where you change your coaching staff, and it wasn't just Matt Rule who was let go. It was the D coordinator. It was the defensive line coach. It was one of the cornerbacks coach. It was uh, another assistant on the defensive side. So it was the assistant special teams coach. It was trading away McCaffrey, trading away your number two wide receiver. And here we are in mid-December, and I understand the division is what it is, but they've won three out of four. We're about to play meaningful games in mid-December. There's a great chance we're going to play meaningful games into January, and there is still a chance here that Carolina could host a playoff game if they win the division. And when you look at the rest of the slate, the Panthers, I hate to say control your own destiny because destiny is predetermined and can't be controlled, but (laughs) they can write their own narrative moving forward. If they win out or probably even go 3-1, and they're going to be in position – to win the division, and that means host a playoff game. So I think Steve Wilkes has earned uh, not just consideration, but serious consideration. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if internally he's the front runner right now for this job. Maybe they, you know, look at a couple of other candidates. But I think Steve Wilkes has, uh, you know, certainly earned the right to be at the forefront of the conversation. And the other part of your question, which is the style part, you know, I think coaching has got a lot to do with this because. When you have quarterback instability and you've gone through three different starting quarterbacks, um, and and let's face it, there's no Josh Allen, there's no Patrick Mahomes, there's no elite quarterback on this roster, you're not going to win by throwing the ball 40 times a game. Outside of D.J. Moore, there really isn't a bona fide playmaker on the outside. LaVisca Chenault has had his moments. Uh, There's really no reliable target in the pass game with the tight ends. So you sort of have to evaluate and say, okay, we have to coach this team to its strengths. And what are the strengths? Well, they're really good in the trenches, O-line and D-line. So let's play smash-mouth football. You have a big bruising back in Deontay Foreman behind an O-line that at the start of the season we were saying is improved. Honestly, this is a top-ten O-line in the NFL. Maybe even uh, we might be underselling that a little bit. They've been really good. Um, And so, again, from a coaching perspective, okay, these are the pieces that we have. What's the formula for success based on those pieces instead of, well, this is what we do and this is what we're going to do regardless of the pieces we have. And I think Steve Wilkes has done that, and you got to give him credit. This team had no identity for six games. They have an identity now. Anish Roth is with us here, and you should shoot him a follow on Twitter at Anish ESPN. He's really good at breaking down the football piece of it, but also he gets philosophical as well, where now my mind's been blown by the cliche that's been said for years upon years upon years that you control your own destiny. It doesn't make any any sense. You, you've shattered my world. WD, we are messaging back and forth in a chat here behind the scenes trying to figure out where does this expression even come from, control your own destiny? Have you found anything, WD? I, I don't know. Our minds are blown. It's amazing, Anish. You're right. You nailed it. I mean, destiny is predetermined, so how can you control it? I've always wondered that. <laughs> uh, it's fantastic. Uh, take us uh, behind the scenes to Seattle, which we know a lot of people listening to this probably have never been to Seattle for a football game there. I have once, and man, it is a great environment to watch a NFL game. Seems college-like, and you know the great college environments too, but both in the lead-up to the game and afterwards, some of the access that you're privy to as the voice of the Panthers what do you think is going to stick with you uh, calling this type of win for Carolina? Yeah, you know, for me, I think 
a couple of things that, that jump out from a, from a personal standpoint. One, um, I always enjoy going to Seattle. My wife is from out there. Her families are out there. So I get to see a lot of my in-laws and, and, you know, we only usually see them a couple of times a year because of the distance. So that was nice. Um, I'm a coffee guy. So Seattle's got great coffee um, and that did not disappoint. So I enjoyed that. And, you know, the other thing um, on a personal level was, you know, I'm there, I, I have some friends there and, and to be able to call the game on Sunday um, with uh, a good friend of mine and, you know, kind of fellow demographic brother, uh, Adam Amin doing the game for Fox. Uh, that was kind of a cool moment for, for the two of us. Um, you know, grow up as a, as a South Asian kid in this country, um, you know, broadcasting sports is not something that we're expected to do. And, um, you know, for both of us to be there doing an NFL game, uh, we had some you know time that we could spend Saturday night after his coaches meetings at the hotel. Uh, that was special for both of us. So that's kind of what I'll take away. And certainly in terms of calling the game, um, that's as much fun I've had calling a game for the Panthers this season. We were exciting. We were fast. Um, the environment was great. It was electric. And, you know, we've now put ourselves in a position where these next four games um, <laughs> take on so much more meaning. And, you know, we're sitting there at one and five. And I remember looking at the note at one and five that only three teams since 1990 have started one and five and made the playoffs. And here the Panthers are a game out of first place. Adam Amin was great yesterday calling Panthers Seahawks, as was Anish Raf, who's joining us here on WSJS. And a big part of Steve Wilkes' success has been winning games at Bank of America Stadium. Not only is he 3-0 and in those games, all three of those wins have been by double digits, too. And especially considering who the opponent is this week, from a personal standpoint for the owner, David Tepper, who has that big decision coming <laughs> up, how big do you think winning at home is? Like he, We're talking about a human being here in Niche where everybody has an ego, especially if you're worth billions upon billions. Having a stadium fill up, and we heard Steve Wilkes call today to have you know keep Steeler fans out of there, to win at home and to be handing out footballs if you're David Tepper and to beat that team, how significant, given the other context too, do you think Sunday might be ultimately in the decision that Tepper's about to make? Well, listen, I think every game is significant down the stretch, um, especially given how close this team is. Um, I'll say this, when you look at the rest of the schedule and you see who your competition is facing, Tampa, which looks like a shell of itself, Tom Brady looks old, um, finally, Tampa's playing a red-hot Cincinnati team, a Cincinnati team that started slow that's now 9-4, and four, and Joe Burrow's playing like an MVP. It's not a far stretch to say, hey, if Cincinnati beats Tampa and the Panthers hold serve uh, against a Pittsburgh team that might be down to Mason Rudolph, its third-string quarterback, against a Pittsburgh team that couldn't stop the run last week against Baltimore and reading some of the quotes, the players were saying, we knew the Ravens were going to run because Lamar Jackson wasn't playing and you had a – running quarterback and Anthony Brown, and there was no surprise, and yet they still couldn't stop it. I mean, you lick your chops a little bit. and You say, this is an opportunity. There's a good chance if you and I are talking again next Monday, we could be talking about the Panthers sitting in first place and holding the division tiebreak. Yeah, that'd be insane. Anish, last thing for you. I'd like your initial read of the college football playoff where it seems like the way it's presented is Georgia being the defending champs and unbeaten, there seem to be better than the rest of the pack, or some saying Georgia and Michigan, and then you have the other two that are just there. 
I don't read it that way. It doesn't seem like to me that there's a dominant team this year. You could pick holes, it feels like, through any one of them. How wide do you believe the gap is between, let's say, the top two and the next two? I think the gap between one and two, three, and four is somewhat significant. To me, Georgia is the overwhelming favorite going into this thing. Uh, defensively, they've been dynamite despite losing all those draft picks last year. We've seen what Jalen Carter can do. They've got running backs. They're better offensively than they were a year ago. Yeah, they, they've had a couple of lulls through the course of the season. I just think that they're so much more complete than any of the other teams. Ohio State has had issues stopping the run, and the way Georgia's built in the trenches, that's going to be a problem. Uh, C.J. Stroud's going to have to carry them. Now, that's the one thing Ohio State has. I think they've got the best player, um, at least the best quarterback of the remaining four teams, as good as Max Duggan is. I'd take C.J. Stroud over him. So, um, to me, you know, Ohio State does have that, and we know at the college level, if you have the best player on the field and if he's the quarterback, that gives you a puncher's chance. As much as I like what Michigan's done with running the football and defensively, um, I'm just not sold on their quarterback play. And last year, as good as Michigan was up front, I mean, Georgia mauled them, mauled them. So, uh, you know, I expect Michigan to beat TCU. I think Ohio State could hang. I'm just not sure they can hang for four quarters. I need to be convinced this is not the Georgia Invitational. Anish, as a coffee guy, I figured I have to ask you, what was yeah. the order in Seattle? It was uh, this cardamom chai latte, uh, nice. which was good. Uh, I, I, yeah, it's funny. Uh, Jim Zoki and I were talking on the uh, plane ride over about coffee. He, he's a coffee guy, too, and he, he brought up uh, Kona coffee, which you, you get out in Hawaii, which is amazing. And we, we got into this coffee story. So long story short, on my honeymoon, we were out in Bali, and somebody said the greatest coffee in the world exists here. And I said, well, what's it called? And they said, it's, it's Kopi Luwak. So I said, oh, it's great. Go to this little plantation. They make it there. They can give you a tour. You can try it there. It's incredibly expensive on the international market, but it was really cheap there. So my wife and I go there. We try this cup of coffee. It is the most delicious cup of coffee I've ever had. And then they show you how they make it. And I've not had another cup of it since because it is made from fermented mongoose droppings. <laughs> so I'll leave, you, I'll leave you with that coffee story. Why? Why would they do that to you? Why would they make you taste it and then show you how it's made? Well, <laughs> Because they want you to try it. Now, again, it is delicious, but it's one of those, after you have it, you see, you said, wait, what? Um, and, and yes, it's made from fermented mongoose droppings. So they feed the mongoose these beans, and then you know, the mongoose will expel the beans. They ferment them. They roast them. And that is your coffee. Three words. Coffee three words I didn't think I'd hear on the radio today. Fermented mongoose droppings. Anish, I, I, I'll tell you this. Go look it up. Go look it up. Go look what a bag of Kopi Luwak costs. And and then imagine finding out after the fact what it's made from. Fermented mongoose droppings. Anish Roth, you're a wordsmith. Thanks for making the time for us, and we'll see you sometime soon. I'll see you Sunday in Charlotte. Sounds good to you, Josh. There Bye. you go. That's Anish Roth from ESPN and also radio voice of the Carolina Panthers.
I think Carolina out physicals the Seahawks. This is a game that's going to be won on the ground, and that favors Carolina. It is Hubbard fighting, lunging, reaching. It's a touchdown. Carolina pulls off the upset 24 to 16. It's J.C. Horn to seal it for what will be the best Carolina victory by far in 2022. The North Carolina Tar Heels face Georgia Tech tomorrow. And whatever the best version of this team looks like, that's what we're going to see in tomorrow's game. This is going to be a reprieve for them. Right to Davis. He is not waiting around. Look at this spin move. And drops it in. I'll tell you what, Seth trembles everywhere. How about the bounce speed? Davis with two. Get up, Caleb. We've had a pretty good weekend. Knock those two predictions out. Three and one in our official picks. We're now double digits over 500 for the season. 54, 44, and or make it 55, 45, and one. So about 55% on the picks this year. Feel good about that. Here are some crazy trends. Before we get to North Carolina locker room sound, some crazy trends that the Panthers bucked yesterday with the win in Seattle. You let me know which of these three stats is the craziest to you, WD. That was the first road win for Carolina since the Arizona game last November. And to jog your memory of that game, that was the Cam Newton, I'm back, where he scored the two goal line touchdowns. That's the last time the Carolina Panthers won a game on the road. That's the first stat. Secondly, it's the first set of back-to-back wins Carolina's had since September of 2021. That's when they started the year 3-0. Since they started 3-0 last season, they had not won back-to-back games. Now, they beat Denver, and they won in Seattle. Then lastly, Seattle scored... How many points in this game? One to 24? Yeah, 24 points. This is the first win in over two years. Carolina has won where the opponent scored more than 17 points. 17 points or more. The last time that happened was October of 2020. Carolina beating Arizona 31-21. Carolina had not won a game in which their opponent scored 17 or more since October of 2020. That trend ended yesterday. Which of those stats is the craziest? The first and third stats are kind of equally crazy to me, but I'd probably go with the third stat because this Panther team is just so much more fun to watch now, and they're like they're hanging in, again, these high-scoring games. And they weren't doing that the last couple of years under Matt Rule. No. 17 points. Most teams in the NFL average between 21 and 24. Carolina has not beaten a team 17 or more in a game in over two years. They got that yesterday. Now let's go into the Tar Heel locker room. Armando Baycott, he's our guy. Armando. We chatted with him after the win against Georgia Tech. Talking about the four-game losing streak. About Jalen Washington's debut on Saturday. He scored his first points at the very end of that game. But we started by asking him specifically about the reaction, some of the backlash the teams received from the fans 
after that four-game drought. This is how it sounded. Yeah, well, I mean, I think they're just passionate about Carolina basketball. And, I mean, it's one of the most storied programs. So when they don't win, they get upset. I mean, I'm an Eagles fan, and I get mad too. So, And I say mean things too, so I guess I kind of understand where they're coming from. It would be hypocritical of me to be mad at the fans for what they say. I mean, they really just want the best for us. And, I mean, we got a lot of young guys, and I know it kind of sometimes may get to their heads, but it's one of those things where, I mean, you're playing big-time basketball, so you just got to deal with it. The Eagles have one loss. What are you yelling at? I mean, I've been an Eagles fan for, what, like 15, 16 years. It's been some tough years, too, so I understand where the fans come from. How does it add to what you guys have if Jalen is able to progress and give you more? Yeah, I mean, he kind of been like our secret weapon that nobody knows about. Uh, he's a great player, and as you can see, I mean, he made the turnaround face up. I mean, the turnaround Jay in the mid post. I mean, that's great, and it just shows like he can shoot the ball and score. And being a big man to be able to score the way he does, it's going to be great for us and beneficial. You said the secret weapon. When did you know he was going to be that based on what you've seen in practice and how he's gotten yeah. healthier? I mean, I would say after his first few live practices, I mean, he does a great job. He can really shoot the ball. and. Also in the post, too, like his turnaround jump shot, I mean, it kind of reminds me of Garrison Brooks, just the way he can get it off and make it, so it's great. And, I mean, he got so much more length than Garrison, too, it's going to be hard to stop. Was that the source of the celebration in there that we heard, that Jalen got a bucket, or what was it? Yeah, we threw a lot of water on him and ice and everything, so that was fun. For some backstory, we were all standing there waiting to talk to the players, and all of a sudden we hear this loud eruption from the Carolina locker room. And one of the reporters looked at me and said, haven't heard that this year. So it was great. And due, North Carolina was due a game like that. It felt like apparently Steve Kirshner, the sports information director for the Tar Heels, he throws out some career highs whenever they're career highs or stats out there that are noteworthy for the team after Hubert Davis talks to the guys. And he said, career high in scoring for Jalen Washington who had his first points in college. And that's when the team raced over to him and doused him in water. It was a really nice moment. But they're playing inside out, finally. It's no longer, let's dribble the air out of the basketball and just jack up threes, and hopefully we can figure out a way to post up or have Armando Baycott just clean up the rim or clean Armando. up loose change on the offensive glass. No, they, they told Baycott to run the floor and not worry so much about setting those screens at the top of the key to set up shooters and working outside in. No, they're an inside-out team. That's how they should play, and they finally looked that way. And this was R.J. Davis when I asked him how much of an emphasis it was that they play that way. It was a big emphasis. You know, just good to have Mondo back um, and force the issue, force the ball in the paint. You know, he's a beast down there. So when we were able to get down low, get down low, get him going, um, it kind of opened up the floor a little bit. Um, and that was like you know the main thing: get the ball down low, um, and then get out in transition, re win the rebound, the battle, and we execute the game plan today well. So staying in hoop. It wasn't a great weekend for the middle of the ACC, which makes ranking the top 10 teams a little bit of a chore to do, but we've got it here. Top 10 on the card for the ACC this week at a segment we call Critically Acclaimed. And that's next on The Drive. Ranking the ACC this week, 
not very easy to do, particularly in the middle. The top three or four, you can figure that out, but five through eight, the last couple in the top 10, not so easy. We call this critically acclaimed, where we put out our rankings each and every week. We don't bother with the bottom five teams in the league because do you really need me to tell you Louisville is the last place team in the ACC? Ugh. You played one and nine Florida State. And you were run off the floor in that game. So you can have them. You can have the Louisvilles, the Florida States, the BCs of the world, the Boston Colleges of the world was Boston probably College. what I needed to say there. Spoiler alert, they're not in the top ten. Lost another one this weekend. Here are the 10 teams that did make the list, though. Number 10. We start with the Pitt Panthers. Lost to Vandy in the middle of the week. Got their face back on Saturday. Jeff Capel's team is 7-4. and four. They Have that win at NC State on their resume. They won by 30 at Northwestern. Doesn't say a lot, but at least it says something. And what it says is, this isn't a bad basketball team. Does that mean they're going to make the NCAA tournament? Probably not. But are they one of the two or three worst teams in the league? Pretty clearly no. And that's an improvement from last year. And Jeff Capel deserves a little bit of credit for that, considering how grim things looked in the transfer portal going into the year, some of the allegations surrounding this team off the court that were problematic. Pittsburgh, they've maneuvered through some stuff, and they're not going to be an easy out in the ACC. Number nine. Syracuse. The Orange has figured some stuff out. They were four and four, three and four, four and four, but they've won a number of games in a row. Three, three straight. They beat Nor Notre Dame in South Bend. Good win. They beat a high-scoring Oakland program by 30, only holding them to 65 points. And they beat down Georgetown in a rivalry game by 19 over the weekend. Syracuse might actually be a good team. Never count out Jim Beheim. Not when he's an 11 seed in March. Not early on in the season when he's having to replace some players, such as his son, Buddy Beheim. Syracuse going to be hanging around, going to be lingering when bubble time arrives. Number eight. As will Wake Forest, who should have beaten LSU on Saturday, up 20 in the game, but they blow the lead. This has been a bit of a problem for the Deeks. They were up eight with 80 seconds to go against Loyola Marymount, and they're going to overtime. They had a pretty big lead, I believe, against Wisconsin that they let slip away, but they ended up winning that game. Closing games, playing with a lead. That's the next step for Wake Forest, but they're still 7-3. and three. They still have that win in Wisconsin, which is not a small thing. They beat Georgia in the non-conference, too. But they should be 9-1, and one, and that LSU win would have been a big one for them to have moving forward. Number 7. Got to have Clemson here. Don't want to put Clemson here because... A 4-5 Loyola Chicago team blew them out on Saturday. But 
P.J. Hall looks like an all-ACC player. They beat Wake Forest up in the second half a couple of weeks ago, so they have that head-to-head win against the Deeks. And this is still a Clemson team that has a lot of continuity to it. Chase Hunter is an important player for them, and obviously Hall stands out when you watch him. I like Brad Brunell. I like this Clemson team. They're going to be a borderline NCAA tournament team along with these others that I that we mentioned in the middle. Number six. I have North Carolina here. I know they're six and four and Wake and Clemson have better records than them, but the losses that Clemson, Wake, and Syracuse have are a lot worse than North Carolina's. They don't have a bad loss. Okay, you were beaten by a ton of Indiana. How's Indiana looking? Pretty good. North Carolina lost in four overtimes to Alabama. They lost on the road in Blacksburg, and that came down to the very end. And I'm forgetting one. Lost to Iowa State. Another pretty good team. They had a kid get hot, and North Carolina was right there in the mix. Should they be in the top five? No. Wins do have to matter. Losses have to matter, too. North Carolina doesn't have a great win yet. Saturday was their first win against a high major opponent against Georgia Tech, but we know the talent's there. We saw it on Saturday, what it can look like when they play well. And now that they've got some things figured out, this seems like a point with a little bit more practice time in between games and the Citadel being at home tomorrow night that North Carolina is going to look a lot better moving forward. Number five. I have Notre Dame here. Another one I'm conflicted about because they lost by 15 to a so-so Marquette team yesterday. But that's really their one bad loss, unless you're going to say Syracuse is. I don't know if I'm going to say that. Uh, They've been dicey against teams that they probably should be better against, but a lot of familiar names... I don't trust this team, but ranking five through eight, five through nine, a difficult thing to do. I have Notre Dame at number five. Number four. Miami. They're 10 and one, but not every 10 and one is built the same way as we'll come to find out. They're ranked in the top 25, but they allowed 105 to Cornell and won by two last week. I think I was on Tuesday. They beat NC State, but NC State was leading in the second half in Miami's building. There have been some close calls for the Kings. Their loss was a blowout loss to Maryland. 10-1's 10-1. Better than what I could say about the teams that are right behind them. Number three. Duke. They have two losses, but man, they're trending upward. Even without Jeremy Roach, they're going to blow out the University of Maryland Eastern Shore. Apparently, WD, didn't you say that Roach has been dealing with that for a while now? He's been playing in pain, and he never even told Coach Shire about that. Shire had to go to him about that. Because you were at the game on Saturday against uh, Maryland Eastern Shore. Uh, Injured Jeremy Roach still put up 22 against Iowa. That's a really good win. Pretty easy to figure out who the top three teams are. Ranking them in order is another challenge. Duke ceiling so high, but they need to be a little sharper towards the ends of halves and figuring out what this team is going to be, what style you're going to play more consistently than not. Number two. Virginia Tech. They're 10-1, and 
probably should be 11 and 0. Their one loss is the College of Charleston on the road, true road game, by a couple of points. That was a great basketball game that went back and forth. But when you look at this team, every piece of them just seems to make sense. They're very purposeful when they play. Everybody understands their role and Joe Giglio and Raleigh made this point, and I agree with it. Mike Young is the best coach in the ACC right now. Pure X's and O's. Pick him over anybody. It stood out to me when WD made this point last year with Coach K still at Duke that he'd take Mike Young. If he had to win one game, he'd take Mike Young over anybody. And you could see why, what he's doing at Virginia Tech. They won the ACC tournament title. No other ACC, no other Virginia Tech basketball coach can say that. And this Hokie team is formidable, plain and simple. And they should be ranked a, high, a lot higher than number 24 in the AP poll. Number one. And the other team in Virginia should be ranked higher than number two. Ridiculous that Purdue jumped over them after Purdue, what? They went to overtime with Nebraska on Saturday? Bleeping Nebraska. Oh, yeah, that team's going to leap over Virginia, please. They held JMU to 50 points last week. Was it close? Sure, but JMU's good. And JMU, I think, averaged 93 a game before that one. Give the Hoos some credit. They're unbeaten, just like Purdue is, but they were number two in the poll and got jumped despite the fact they haven't lost. If Virginia beats Houston this weekend, Houston was number one last week, but lost to Alabama. They dropped to five in this week's AP poll. Then Virginia should be the number one team next week. I think they should be number one right now. But that is critically acclaimed for this week. Some other highlights from the weekend. Shout out to Mount Airy for winning their first ever high school state championship game. They beat a power out of Eastern North Carolina and Tarboro. Quite a surprising result there. RV, how about Army Navy? Never had been to overtime before that series. For the first time it does, and it's double OT. <laughs> I'll tell you who I feel the worst for. Whoever had under 32 on the Army-Navy game, that's thinking about you today because that's a tough beat when at halftime it's 3 to nothing or 7-3. to three. You're probably thinking, oh, there's no way, any way these teams are going to score over 32 points. They don't call it under time. That's what we've come to find out. So that was a really, really cool game to watch this weekend. And the win for Army, which proved to be costly because Ken Niamatololo, no longer Navy's coach. He was an assistant for Paul Johnson for five years and then the head coach for the last 15. And now Navy, they announced today, officially, that they moved on from Niamatololo and that they haven't decided if they're going to hire a search firm to hire their next coach. If you work in the military, I don't think you need the search firm to figure out who your next coach is going to be. I always am bothered by the search firms. That's a really good job to have. They don't let go of coaches all that often. Kind of surprised that they did in this instance. 